Well, hello, Two Cities Church. Uh, my name is Pastor Kyle, and the world is different. Your life is different. My life is different. Our church, this room is different. Every Sunday, for the last, you know, well, I guess since we've been in this building, so for over a year, we've had four services full in this building, and now this room is empty. And, and I'm preaching to a camera. And it's just, it's just a different world. And I know not only that, but your situation has changed. Some of you, you're very concerned financially, whether it's retirement or whether it's your job or whether it's your career or whether it's your hours getting cut. For others of you, it's you're worried about the virus. And maybe you're not worried about it, but you're worried about it for your grandmother or somebody you love and know. For others of you, you're just isolated. You feel more alone than ever. You feel like there is less that you can do than ever. For others of you, your whole life has changed because, well, you're working from home and your spouse is working from home while you're also trying to uh, homeschool your kids because they don't go to school anymore, which means nobody's getting anything done. And so, and not only that, everything is canceled, everything is rescheduled. I mean, I read this week that because sports, there's no sports to watch. And I thought, well, we know that, right? But, but what, what I didn't realize is that means the gambling industry is at zero. There's nothing to gamble about. And the article said that people are now starting to gamble on the weather. They're literally trying to gamble on what will be the temperature, what will be the humidity. Now, that's what we call an addiction, okay, when you're gambling about the weather. Uh, but, but our world is very different. How are we responding? Let me just tell you the three things that I'm doing personally that we're leading the staff and the elders to do that we would, we would challenge and ask you guys to do. Here's the first thing that we're doing. The very first thing we're doing is we're going to lead. We're going to lead the church. We're going to lead our groups. We're going to uh, lead our families. Uh, we're going to lead at every level. And let me just encourage you to lead yourself in this season. Uh, th- you know, they, they said last week that the European Union asked Netflix if they would lower the quality of their videos because so many people were watching Netflix that it was buckling and breaking the internet. Don't be that person. <laughs> don't, be, don't be the person that re-watches all seven seasons of your favorite show. Don't be the person that sleeps in. Uh, be every day, all the time. Uh, be the person that is the healthiest, holiest version of yourself through this. That's the first thing. Secondly, we're listening. Okay, we're listening. We're listening to authorities. Uh, we're trying to be good Christians and good citizens. We're trying to listen to the medical community. We're, we're trying to listen to the national and local um, and, and state governments. And we're, we're, we're trying to avoid two extremes. We're trying not to be obsessed with things where we're checking it all the time and we're, we're scared, we're trying also not to be foolish and go, this isn't a big deal. Because let's just admit it, when Don, and I'm not trying to be public or, uh, political here, but when Donald Trump and CNN agree on something, it's probably a big deal. And so, so we are listening to people in our lives. We're listening to wise counsel. We're listening to mentor pastors. And, and then finally, uh, not only are we going to lead, not only are we going to listen, we are committed to loving our neighbor. There was an article that came out this week in Europe that said Europeans are getting to know their neighbors for the first time. And it's because in a season like this, you have a reason to go to your neighbor and say, do you need anything? Can I help you? And we are so, and I'm so passionate about this, we want to continue to make decisions, not out of fear, not out of fear, not out of fear, but out of love. If we stay home, if we quarantine ourselves, it's, it's not because we're afraid, it's because we want to best love our neighbor. And so I believe, and I'm excited about this, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into the book of Galatians. And by the way, I didn't know when we planned to preach through Galatians that we were going to be dealing with this, but the book of Galatians and the text that we're in uh, today speaks directly to us. But let me just say this, that we more than ever have an opportunity for the church to be strengthened, the least to be helped, and the lost to be reached. So would you pray with me, and then let's, let's go into God's word together, and let's do what we've been doing every Sunday. Pray with me. Lord, we pray that the church would be strengthened. 
Historically and biblically, we see the church is strengthened and shines the most in suffering. God, help us to do that. Help us to start with ourselves and our families to be the healthiest and holiest version of ourselves in this season. Lord, help us. Lord, we pray to reach the least. There are many people in our city and around the country who need help in this time. Let the church be there. Let us be there for the least. And then the lost, Lord. We pray for people who are far from God and close to us. We are going to have a unique opportunity to reach them. I pray that you'd help us to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, not only is the world different, everybody's home life is different, which means kids are home and spouses are home and everyone's working, which means, well, I guess on a positive note, you could say, here's what that means. That means that uh, we could have deeper discipleship and more memories. That's what I think, at least on a positive note. Deeper discipleship is, well, now I can pray with my kids more and now I'm around them more and now I can model Christ more and now I can be there for bedtime every night and now I'm not traveling as much. And, and then more memories is, well, you know, uh, what an opportunity, because for many of us, our, our, our kids, even as young as they are, I've got a three-year-old, and I thought, will this be his first memory? Will the quarantine be his first memory? Maybe. And so what an opportunity to make memories and go, you know what? Mom and dad trusted the Lord through this. Mom and dad were not overly stressed. We were not depressed. We were not afraid. We were not fearful. What an incredible opportunity. So, so on a positive note, more memories, deeper discipleship. On a negative note, right, what can often happen is a ton more conflict, Right? And why would there be more conflict? Well, it makes sense. Everybody's at home all the time. Everybody's on edge. Everybody's worried about finances. And, and couples are spending more time together than ever. And, uh, and couples tend to fight mostly about finances. And if they don't fight about finances, they fight about free time. And both of those things are kind of very much up in the air right now. And so that's where we are. Well, well, today what I want us to see is I want us to see a conflict. And it's the conflict of two of the most important men in the Bible, a guy named Paul, a guy named Peter. This would be Tim Keller meets John Piper, okay, in, in a battle. That's really what's happening here. And they have, both have big personalities. Um, Paul and Peter are such big characters in Scripture, persons in Scripture, that the book of Acts is, is divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 9 is pretty much... Um, the, the story of Peter and the gospel going forward. And then Acts 9 through Acts 28 is mostly the story of Paul and how the gospel goes forward and through to the Gentiles through Paul. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. And in verse 11, I want us to pick up and I want us to see these two men together. Uh, Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 says this, but when Cephas, and Cephas is just the Greek name for Peter. So we're talking about Peter here. Uh, he came to Antioch. Now we're in a different city. Okay, two weeks ago we were in Jerusalem. Now we're in Antioch. Uh, there were major cities that were incredibly important for the forward progress of the gospel. Antioch was one of them. Okay, it says this. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why? Well, for, before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now let's just be honest. This is why we love Peter. We love Peter because he's just like you and he's just like me. He's impulsive. He's fearful. He loves the Lord, but he sins. He needs to be corrected. He needs people in his life to speak into him. Then he needs to repent. So th this is who Peter is. And what I want us to see first, and this is unique, and this is why I love how the Bible, it, because the Bible is timeless, it's always timely. It always speaks to every person in every place. Now, here's what I want you to see. Look what it says in verse 11, one more time. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Here's the first big idea. Life was meant to be lived face to face and shoulder to shoulder. Why, which is why this is so painful. You were not designed to be, distance for, to be distanced from other people. That's not how you were designed. 
And that's what makes, this is why I actually believe that what is happening with this virus has a demonic component because what it's doing is isolating people and that's what Satan does. That's what he did in the garden. He wants to isolate people so that he can take advantage of them in different ways. And we're reminded in this passage that Christianity, what we see with Peter and Paul is they're going to have a face-to-face conflict and conversation so they can be shoulder-to-shoulder in ministry. That's what marriage is. Marriage is we're going to come face-to-face. We're going to talk about things. We're going we're to fight about things in, in hopefully in godly ways. We're going to forgive each other. But we're going to have face-to-face conversation so we can be shoulder-to-shoulder, right? Now, men tend to be better shoulder-to-shoulder. They, if you want to get to know a guy, you got to go on a walk with them. You got to build something with them. You got to play sports with them. Um, women tend to be better face to face. We need both in Christianity. And, and what we're doing right now is with technology and everything, we are grateful for it. Thank God for it. Uh, but it is secondary, it is supplemental, it is, it is not a substitute for the real thing, which is why we want to get back together as soon as possible. Uh, let me just encourage you though this, you have a lot of time right now to be face-to-face with your kids, and you have a lot of time right now to be face-to-face with your spouses, and you have a ton of time right now to be face-to-face uh, with your roommates. And so let me just encourage you to have the conversations and even the healthy conflict, right? Because conflict isn't a bad thing. Conflict could break you down or conflict could build you up. Let's have the healthy conversations face-to-face so we can be shoulder-to-shoulder in ministry and mission because there's so much that needs to be done. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing I want you to see. The second thing is this. When you are fearful, you will act sinful. Please hear me say that because the temptation in your life and my life right now is going to be to be fearful, And that will not have any good effects. You will not find the will of God in your life by being fearful, ever. Because when you are fearful, it will only make you sinful. You will make sinful and selfish decisions. I want you to see this, verse 12. For before certain men, and these men are the Judaizers, okay? Uh, These men, it says they came from James. James is is Jesus' half-brother. Now, James is a great guy. James is a Bible guy. James loves the Lord and teaches the Bible faithfully, but his followers didn't get it. That happens sometimes. Sometimes followers are worse than their leaders. They take things to the extreme. They say things their leaders didn't say, but that's what's happening here. It says, before certain men came from James, he, that's Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. In the Greek means, uh, basically, he was doing it consistently, right? And in that culture, when you eat with someone, it's like, I love you, I welcome you, we're equals, we're the same. It says, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, and here's the key word, he was fearing, he was fearing, he was afraid, the circumcision party. So these guys basically said, they said a couple things. One of the things they said is, it's Jesus plus circumcision, if you're gonna be a Christian. It's believe plus be circumcised, then you'll be saved. He says, so they came, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So here's what you need to understand, that these Judaizers, they did a couple things. One, they said you have to be circumcised. The other thing is they said you had to follow all the cleanliness laws. And so here's what the whole idea was. And by the way, this is interesting because when it talks about cleanliness, aren't we as Americans more and more aware of keeping things clean right now, Right? I mean, how many of you, you have, you're putting hand san- reapplying hand sanitizer during the sermon right now, okay, as we're talking? Um, and, and one of the big things I'm seeing on Facebook that's coming out of all of this is people are saying, thank you for finally washing your hands, okay? I, I, had, I had one lady online, I heard, she, she wrote down, she said, she said, when I read the instructions of how to wash your hands and how long you should wash it and the temperature of the water and, and how you should move your hands, she goes, I realized that for the last 25 years, I have actually never washed my hands correctly. 
which is an interesting thought. So we, we are, as a society, we are realizing more than ever, we're trying to keep everything clean. Clorox wipes, Lysol, hand sanitizer, soap, um, all of that, social distancing, and all that's good. And it's actually really important, and it's why it's interesting that we're in this text right now, because here's what they would do. They would basically say, hey, listen, you had to keep yourself clean, and that basically meant diet and dress, and don't touch dead things. That's kind of the summary of it. That was like, it's an oversimplification, but basically that's what they said. Diet, dress, don't touch dead things. And diet and dress was their main way. So who they ate with and what they ate, and then their dress. And we go, oh, isn't that silly? Well, isn't that what people do today? I mean, how many people are defined by their diet and their dress? It's like, well, I only eat at Whole Foods uh, because it's non-GMO. It's completely organic. It's completely grass-fed. And on top of that, I only shop at Lululemon or Patagonia. You know, those, those are the, and, and I dress a certain way and I diet a certain way, and then it makes it kind of shows everybody else who I am. Well, these people said, well, you know, we don't eat pork and we don't eat bacon, and uh, and we don't eat with certain people, and and so Peter he knew because if you go to Acts 10, and we can't go there now, but go there as a community group. If you go to Acts 10, what you're going to find in Acts 10 is that God gave Peter a vision and said, look, I have made all things clean. So so here here and here's the here's why the gospel is so important. Um, in the Old Testament, they thought that you had to eat certain things and you would be clean if you did not eat certain things and you would be unclean if you ate certain things. And Jesus Christ comes, and, and, and let me say one other thing about that. They also had the sacrificial system. And what, what they worked together, they would basically say, you need to do these things to be clean. But everybody, just like we're struggling to keep everything clean, everybody couldn't keep things clean. And so they'd have to go to the sacrificial system and they'd have to say, I, I can't do it. I'm, I'm unclean, and they would sacrifice something. And Jesus Christ comes, and this is so powerful. He says, every person is unclean. And trying to clean yourself just shows you how unclean you are, right? Because the person who realizes how bad they are is the person who actually tries to be good. It's like, you know, try to be a really good dad or a really good mom or a really good friend. If you really try, it's really, really hard. And so they would, they would try to be clean, and then they would get dirty, and, uh, and then they would have to do a, sacrificial, a sacrifice. And so Jesus comes, and he says, I am the only one who is clean. Every person is unclean. I will be the sacrifice. Belief in me cleanses you internally. And Peter knew this, but he temporarily forgot it. He temporarily became foolish. He temporarily became fearful. And I want you to see what happens next. So he does that. It says he becomes fearful. And here's what happens. Um, And you see this in verses 12 and 13. He becomes fearful, so he becomes very selfish. He's only thinking about himself. This is what happens when you're fearful, right? This is why people are hoarding hand sanitizer and hoarding toilet paper and you can't find ground beef anywhere and and people are creating their houses into bunkers. They're not just being wise and preparing. They're going to the extreme. Why? Because people are afraid. Uh, Here's another thing. Um, When you're fearful, you're unstable, okay? So there's, you know, you'll see this. It's fight or flight. Fight or flight. And the truth is, people think, well, I just do one of those. You know, I'm a fighter, I'm a fighter. Most people are both. And you see this, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm flight, I'm, I'm hiding in my house. Oh no, the stock market's going terrible. Oh, I'm going to become a workaholic, I'm going to fight against this. And we don't want to flight or fight, we want to respond in faith. And you can see how fear makes things unstable, because I don't know a ton about the stock market, but why is the stock market up and down and all around right now? Because people are afraid. So therefore, the stock market becomes unstable, because people go, do I buy, do I sell, do I keep, do I convert to cash, what, what do I do? And they become afraid. But the third thing, and the main thing that we see here, is that it makes you hypocritical. That's what we see in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
So hypocrisy, and we talk about this a lot because it's a big theme in scripture. Hypocrisy is when you are a different person, when you are in a different place or you are around different people. That's the definition of hypocrisy. Integrity is when you are the same person, whether you're quarantined or not quarantined, whether you're traveling or not traveling. It's, it's, hypocrisy says, I do not have a compartmentalized life. I don't have a home life and a work life. I don't have a weekend life and a church life. I have the same life. I fear God. God always sees me. Therefore, I'm not going to fear man and act differently when I'm in one place or I'm around one person. So Peter, he's incredibly fearful. He becomes hypocritical, and it affects the people around him that he loves and knows, right? And that's, that's the great danger. I want you to see this. Here's what it says. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, so what we see is Peter's hypocrisy and his fearfulness ends up affecting a group of people and a leader in his life. It says this, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You have no idea how much your life matters and how much influence you have, even if you don't think you do. Most people, especially part of it is we live in such a connected world, a more connected world than we've ever lived in. So there are, I I promise you, there are way more people watching your life than you think. And I'll tell you, uh, your kids are watching your life. And I would just encourage you that in this season where you are more quarantined, you are more at home, you are more with your family or with your roommates or particularly with your kids, they are watching you and do not invite into your house a spirit of fear, but instead a spirit of faith in this season. This is what Peter does not do. He becomes hypocritical, and he starts having a negative influence, right? And that's what, that's, what, that's what happens. That's what we're seeing. Somebody gets afraid, so they write about it, so then everybody else gets afraid. What we need instead is to have faith in the midst of all of this. So Peter's going to end up having a conversation, or sorry, Paul is going to end up having a conversation with Peter. Look at verse 14. It says this, but when I saw their conduct, how they were living, was not in step. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Not in step literally means, or, it's the Greek word ortho, which means orthodontist. It means to straighten. It says, that it basically, they were not walking in straight step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all. So basically, Paul said, look, I had to confront this. I had to confront this sin publicly because it was done publicly. And that's how it works. Sometimes people go, well, how does church discipline work? The discipline is always as public as the sin. And the great desire in life is for the di- to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. But because Peter was a senior leader who sinned grievously publicly, Paul goes after him and confronts him. Look at verse 14b. It says this, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. He's reminding, and we all need this, he's reminding Peter of the gospel. See, there's an order to the gospel, and I just want to talk about this because I've not probably talked about this enough, and it's so important. The order of the gospel in our life is I believe, and the moment I believe in Jesus Christ and what he's done for me in his death, life, death, and resurrection, the moment I believe, I am saved. End of story. And then, the rest of my life, I live out of the reality that I've believed on what Jesus has done and he's changed me. The rest of my life is about obeying. 
I obey out of a heart of gratitude and gratefulness for what God's done. So the right gospel order that actually changes and transforms the human heart is, I believe, immediately I am saved, now I'm secure, and I obey out of it. It's a whole, you could actually watch people who they do things, and they look the same on the outside, but they're doing them for completely different motives on the inside. Because the second way that most people live, most people, even who intellectually believe the gospel, they, they slip into the wrong order of the gospel, and they believe something like this, I believe, I obey in some area of my life, spiritual disciplines, repenting of something, doing something, then I'll be saved. And the transformation and change that genuinely happens in a human heart is when you believe, and then you realize God saved me, and then you obey out of it. And, and I'll tell you, I've never seen, this does not happen naturally for a Christian to think this way. It does not happen accidentally. It takes intentionally thinking about the gospel message and its implications on your life. Because let's just talk about Peter for a moment. I mean, the apostle Peter. I mean, it, what, what this reminds us is that a mature person can have a gospel blind spot. I, I don't think we can think of many people in all of human history who were probably more mature Christians than Peter. He walked with Jesus for three years. He ended up writing books of the Bible. Jesus says at one point to him and to the group at large, but really to him, on this rock I'm going to build the church. And yet Peter had a gospel blind spot. There were, and there's areas in your life too and in my life where we're not seeing how the gospel actually personally applies to it. And it's not that, all the commentators agree, it's not that Peter had the wrong gospel. Like he believed it. He could have told you, I, I believe, and then you know I'm saved, and then I obey. But it, it didn't take the 18 inches from his head to his heart to transform the way that he was living. And here's the question. If, if the Apostle Paul knocked on your door, you opened up, you know, he kept social distancing, he kept six feet from you, and, you, and, you, and he said to you, um, where, and he said, you're not walking in line with the gospel, where would he say that to you? For some of you, he might say that in the way that you re relate romantically to people. For, for others of you, he might talk about the way that you deal with your past. For others of you, he might be telling you the whole way you're thinking about this season that we're in as a nation. You're not thinking about it with, with, with the gospel at the heart of it. Uh, he may talk about your finances. Who, who knows what area he would, see, he would speak to. But for all of us and in all of our lives, there are areas in which the gospel and its reality needs to move deeper into our hearts. So, see, see, what theologians have talked about is the difference between reformation and renewal. And I just want to take a moment because I think it's really, really helpful. It's been helpful for me. Reformation is I want to get the gospel right. Right? When people love talking about, we need reformation. The church needs to be reformed. Well, well great. And it does. It, it always does. We want to clarify what is the gospel. We want to get it right. Renewal is I want to make it real in my heart. Renewal is um, when the doctrines of sin and grace become very personal and individual in your life and you realize not just I'm a sinner but I could tell you a couple areas this week where I sinned. And grace is not a, a cool concept about how God can forgive me but grace is a reality in my life and I, need, and I need it to get through this day and I've asked it from my spouse or I've asked it from my kids or um, I realize I'm such a sinner I'm going to be incredibly patient with my kids during this quarantine because I'm realizing they're gonna need extra grace and God gives me extra grace and so I'm gonna you know, give those that I love and that I'm spending the most time with, I'm gonna give them extra grace in this season. So this is what happens. Paul comes to Peter, he lovingly confronts him 
And, and by the way, this is also why we need to be in community. If you go, well, why do we need community? Because even the apostle Peter couldn't see his own blind spots in that moment, right? You can't see yourself by yourself. You can't truly know yourself by yourself. We need people who know the Bible, know and love us, to come into our lives to lovingly tell us the areas that we are not seeing how the gospel speaks to it. And that's exactly what he does. Peter does not, Paul does not go to Peter and say, you're breaking the rules. He's saying, you're not thinking about this with a gospel logic. You're not allowing the gospel to speak to this area of your life. What would it look like for us to have a kind of community where we weren't confronting each other about rules and regulations, but about how the gospel is speaking to every area of our lives? Which, which, which leads to the next thing. The gospel needs to go from general to personal. The gospel needs to go from general to personal. It needs to go from the external to the internal, from out there to in here. It doesn't just need to be uh, people are sinful, but I'm sinful. Christ died for sinners? Yes. No, Christ died for me. People need to repent? No, I need to repent. People go to heaven or hell? No, I go to heaven or hell. It needs to get really, really personal. And Paul does that. I want you to, as we were going to read verses 15 through 17, Paul does it with a word that may sound distant to us, but it's a very personal word. It's the word justify or justified or justification. This is the first time Paul will use this word in this text, but he's going to use it five times alone in this chapter. Read along with me. It says this, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. You cannot be made right with God by what you do. That's what that means. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are, you cannot be justified by your own works. Now, I, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, even if you had a video recorder around your neck and, and it only recorded what you told yourself and others you should do, you wouldn't even live up to that standard. That's how, we fall, far, fall, how far we fall short. He says this, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. You see how personal that is? In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if we endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So what Paul is talking about is a universal human need, a universal human need, which is to be forgiven of our sins and to be reconciled to God. And the word that he used is justification. And I want to take a moment because that word, for some of you, you might go, I know exactly what that word means. For many of you, many of you who are watching, you, you, that word sounds distant. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you've read it in your Bible. It's a big word. It's got a lot of syllables in it. Um, you're like, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what Martin Luther said about it, and then I'll tell you what it means, just to tell you its importance. Martin Luther said this. This is about the word justification. This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and of course he would say this, and beat it into their heads continually. So, So what does justification mean? Justification is the beautiful truth that because of what Jesus did in his life, perfect life, his death, dying for sins, and his resurrection, his victory over Satan, sin, and death, because of what he did, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God looks at you and says, you are no longer counted as sinful, but as righteous, as forgiven, and as perfect in my sight, not because of anything that you have done, but because of everything that my son has done. That when you put your faith in Christ, the the Bible says that you're then hidden in Christ. And what that basically means is that at one level, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ. 
He sees, what's interesting is actually the Bible says that Jesus, you're in Christ, Christ is in the Father, and you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, which means that Satan would have to go through all members of the, all three members of the Trinity to get to you. Okay, that, that's how safe and secure you are in what God has done. That's the beauty of justification. And many people have used different illustrations to describe it. Let me just give you one. Uh, people talk about justification in banking terms, um, which, which is very appropriate because even Jesus himself in the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts because we may not understand sin all the time, but we certainly, we definitely understand the idea of debt. And, and, w- and what he says is, uh, this idea of justification is that say in your bank account, which is true of us, spiritually, in our spiritual bank account, we are at negative, you know, a trillion dollars or negative a billion dollars, whatever it is. And God says, I actually have a debit card to an unlimited account in my son's name. And what I would like to do is I would like to pay off all of your debt plus give you this card to use and you will have unlimited funds. All you have to do is admit that you can't pay for anything yourself. All you have to admit is that you are spiritually broke and bankrupt. And if you do and just give me the hands of faith, just extend, do nothing but say, I welcome it into my life, I will give you this. That's the power of justification. It's so unique, and when you realize that that's what God has done for you, that he has declared that it's nothing that you have done, but everything that Jesus has done, and that God has been that gracious to you, when you think about that, it changes the human heart, and you realize, I believe, and then I'm saved. And out of that, the rest of my life, I want to obey, I get to obey, not I have to obey. Which leads to the next idea which is found first in verse 18. It says this, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. So Paul talks about, Paul says, the law did not die for you, Christ died for you. The law does not love you, Christ loves you. You, And when you died with Christ, you died to the law, to its demands on your life because they were fulfilled in Christ. And then he says this, and then look how personal this is. In fact, when you read verse 20, I was told this years ago, you should put your own name in this verse. It should, that's how personal the gospel should be. Here's what it says. I, Kyle Mercer, or whatever your name is, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's how connected I am. That what God does is he changes my status and he does something to my soul. Where, where I'm empowered. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What he says is that when the gospel becomes personal, you realize that your life is connected and united with Christ. And therefore, there is a power in your life. There is, a, there is a power in your life to say no to sin and yes to Christ. There is a power in your life, and let me just encourage you, because some of you in isolation or, or around all your family, you probably feel as sinful as you've probably ever felt. Your sin is probably exposed in ways that it maybe has never been before. You may have turned to some habits and some things, unfortunately, even in the last week or two, that you regret now. And what you need to realize is that, that the person, if you're a Christian, the person who loved those old sinful habits is dead. And you need to turn away from those sinful habits and you need to find your life now in Christ and find your forgiveness now in Christ. You need to realize, I believe God saved me. Now I want to and I get to obey out of it. Which leads to the final thing found in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God which basically means I don't 
to act like I don't need God's grace, right? If you're, here, if, you're, if you're a Christian, every Christian gave up on themselves, said, I can't do it by myself. I can't meet God halfway. I need God's grace in my life. And this is where Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness, or you could say being made right before God, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if we say we don't need grace, we say that Jesus' death was unnecessary. And when we look at the death of Christ, it reminds us how badly we needed grace, which leads to my final point. We cannot think about the future apart from the grace of God. There's a lot, one of the reasons people are so fearful is because they don't feel like they're in control and they don't know what's gonna happen in the future. And a lot of people look to their future, they go, I, 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 don't, I don't know what's gonna happen financially. I don't know what's gonna happen with my health. I don't know what's gonna happen with our economy. I don't know what's gonna happen with my career or my job or my classes or whatever. And, and it's, it's like what my friend, my friend told me a story one time. He was in a serious car accident. This was years ago. He, he was in a very serious car accident. And uh, enduring it, I think his wife became unconscious or something like that where he had thought just for a few minutes, he thought, did my wife die? Or is she going to be in serious, serious critical condition? And he said, his, his, he said, my mind and my heart went to so many dark places. And I thought about being a single dad, and I thought about you know, my life without her. And, and, and he said, you know, what I realized in that moment, and he said this to me, he goes, I realized I was thinking about the future apart from the grace of God. And you know, it, was, it was Elizabeth Elliot who famously said, the imagination has no room for the grace of God. There is no grace for the imagination. In other words, we cannot think about our future, and, all, and I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but we, we don't know, and we don't know all that's going to happen, but we have to continue to be a hopeful people because we know that God is going to be with, with us and God is going to give us grace. And this is, and, and you know, the grace of God is the one resource we will never run out of. I know people are worried about bottled water and hand sanitizer and ground beef and, you know, soap and toilet paper and, you know, all of that, and we, and we constantly feel like we've run out of energy, especially in times like this where we're running out of time and some people certainly feel like they're running out of money. The one resource that God says that we will never run out of is the grace of God. And so what I wanna call us to as a church is to just go back to the, the things we've always been talking about, the cross of Christ and the grace of God. Because it is the grace of God that flows from the cross of Christ. That's the connection that is made in verse 21. And more than ever, as a church and in our city, we want to call upon the grace of God. We, we know that we're not smart enough, we're not hardworking enough, um, we're not bold enough, we're not confident enough to do any of this in and of ourselves. I think this is a great time for the church to pray and ask for God's grace in our life and then to extend God's grace to other people's lives. You know, because we're, we're in a time that again and again and again we're hearing this. If you're watching the news or reading the news, they're, 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 they keep talking about an unseen enemy. They're talking about the virus. An unseen enemy that wants to kill and destroy us. Well, that sounds a lot like Satan, sin, and death. And the power is that what Jesus Christ did at the cross was he died in our place for our sins so that if we would believe in him, if we would trust in him, the grace of God would flow to us and eventually would flow through us into other people's lives. And we have an incredible opportunity as individuals, as families, and as a church for the grace of God to flow from us into the least and into the lost in our city. Would you pray with me for that? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name and we ask for more grace. 
Lord, we admit that we are too small to handle this ourselves. Lord, when, when we come to Christ, we give up on ourselves. Lord, we cannot do this alone. We are not smart enough. We don't have the technology. We don't have the confidence. We don't have the fortitude. We don't have the intellect. Lord, we ask for more grace. Lord, I pray for families to have grace. I pray for moms and dads to have so much grace as they lead their children through this time. I pray for all of those in the medical community for more grace as they don't know all that's ahead, all that's going to be ahead in the hospitals, but we pray for grace, Lord. We pray for all of, our, all of the leaders and all of the governmental officials, Lord, that you would give them so much grace as they have so many decisions to make. We pray for all of them and all of this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.